right, so before we really get started, um, I don't know if you saw on Twitter and Facebook everything yesterday, but yesterday was actually the five-year birthday of CRC. Like, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, um, especially as we've been talking about remembering God's faithfulness and, and remembering how God has been so faithful. And it's been, not that I was around for all five, but even the last almost three it's been really cool to see just the way that God has continued to, to, to grow this church. And not necessarily, not necessarily just in number, but the, the way that he has can just continue to be so faithful. Um, but also, and what we've been talking about is, is letting, seeing his faithfulness and reminding us, and ex, letting us expect his continued faithfulness in the future. So um, let's go ahead and pray, and um, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for just who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for just how good you have been. So just specifically as we think back the last five years the, since you placed this church or you created this church, and um, just thank you for the, the awesome, wonderful things that you've done. Um, Father, none of it. Like, we can't take any credit. We can't take any, any praise, but it's, it's all you. It's all your faithfulness, you're working, you're saving people, you're building your church. Father, give us a longing and expectation that you're continue, continually going to do just big things and things that only you can do um, through the church that you've planted here. And Father, um, we look forward to seeing that. I pray that you would just continue to make your name big, to continue to bring the glory um, all to yourself as, as we look at your word, as we sing praises to you, as we spend time together as the church, I, I just ask that you would make yourself so big, that, so, that we'd be just overwhelmed with who you are, that we overwhelm the fact that you would love us, that you would save us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your church. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. Father, take all the glory from this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to go ahead and start turning to 2 Peter 3, um, that's where we're going to be again this morning. Um, but last week I tried really hard to summarize the previous week in just a couple minutes, and I'm going to try to do that again, but incorporate both weeks. Um, I'm really bad at summary, um, but I'm going to try. So we talked about how Peter in this book, but specifically this third chapter, is writing to believers. He's writing to a church, to the church, and, and warning them about the people that are going to come in and, and start teaching some false things. Specifically, Peter's talking about the false teachers that are going to teach that Jesus is not going to return. They're saying that God has not been active in the world. He's not been faithful in the world. So, so why expect him to, why expect Jesus to return? Um, he's really, these, these, the people that Peter's talking about are going to call this into question. We saw the first week that Peter is saying, don't forget about what God has done. Don't forget about God's role in creation. Don't forget about God's role in the flood, that God is active in the world. Don't forget about his faithfulness in the past. And don't neglect to remind yourself of his, faith, his continued faithfulness going forward. That's the one thing we really continue to say was, don't forget God's faithfulness. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness as we even as we look forward into the future. Um, last week, Peter was talking more, speci more specifics of these, th of these things. Um, how there's people, like we can't call into question 
God's timing, or that it seems to be slow, as these people, as these people were thinking, as they had waited all of like less than 100 years probably at this point. But we have no leg to stand on in questioning God's timing. His timing, he's altogether in a different playing field that um, we saw Peter say that 1,000 years is like a day and a day is like 1,000 years that, that we can't even grasp God's view of time. But that the, the fact that Jesus has not returned is grace, is mercy, because God is still saving people. That until Jesus returns, we can be confident that God is still saving people. But he, Peter says, it's like, I'm going to come like a thief. That, that day is going to come. Jesus is going to return at the perfect time. And at that point, it is too late. At that point, we talked a little bit about last week, there's the unsaved and the saved and, and what that looks like. But there is coming a time when Jesus is going to return. My hope is that we've seen a little bit. I know it's not your ordinary Advent series. Um, but as you look around, like, what about us is ordinary? What about us is typical? Um, I was, it was interesting as I looked at the picture that Brian posted on Twitter of all the whole group outside the church. Um, that I guess it was the first Sunday. I don't know when it was. The whole group of people sitting right out here. And it's like, it's knowing what the inside looks like at that point, knowing there was no sticker on the window. It was just a lot. Andy's Jeep was parked right over here where the fence is. It's just, um, it's like, man, like, just again, God's faithfulness and God changing us and growing us. But even having, not being that typical Advent series, I hope that we've seen just the, the spirit of Advent in the celebration, the looking back and remembering God's faithfulness, remembering what he's done, but also being in the, the place of anticipation and waiting and longing for Jesus to return, how the Advent series is kind of a both and, but that we're in the middle of this. We're in the both and. We're in the place where we can look back and celebrate what Jesus has done, but also continue to look forward and look ahead to what he's going to do. And I feel like that's something, especially this time of year, especially in the days leading up to Christmas, that it's really important to continue to remind us of this as things get crazy, as we always talk about just the busyness of December specifically with everything that Christmas brings. Everything can so easily distract us from this mindset of looking back to celebrate, but looking forward and longing for Jesus to return. And we're quickly, it's so easy to, I apologize for the cliche, but it's easy to miss the reason for the season. I was going to try to go all Advent and not say that, but it fit. But what, what is our lives in this time? What is it supposed to look like? What, what should our lives look like as we wait for Jesus, as we are in that middle ground? Like that's a lot of what Peter is talking about here. And my hope is that this morning will be a lot more practical than, I know last week I kind of said, I don't know what this means for you. I don't, I don't know exactly what this looks like in our lives. But this week, I hope to become a lot, be, make it a lot more practical. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. I'm just going to do these three verses. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and, on, and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So, I know some weeks I've tried to like condense things down to a couple of like specific points. Other weeks I haven't. 
Uh, this week, I really, as I was reading through the verses, uh, I usually try to send, like, spend some time Sunday night, Monday, just reading over the verses over and over and over and trying to like just, just, just really wrap my mind around it best I can. And these are three questions that I, I found myself asking on, as I was just reading. So I've just got three questions. I'm not going to give them to you ahead of time. Sorry, some of you are like getting ready to write. Um, but I'm, we're going to ask as we kind of go through and hopefully be able to answer some of these questions that I think um, the, the, the text asks. But Peter sets the stage for it in like the first couple of verses. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. He's talking, remember, if you remember last week, he's talking about the world and the, and the works that are done upon them. And, and Peter's saying, it's all temporary. He's reminding us that it's all temporary. And how, we're going to talk about this point, how our lives should reflect the, that, every, that these things are temporary. That, that, especially all the things that this time of year brings. Um, and it's something I think that we continually need to remind ourselves of is just what all this stuff, especially with Christmas, is. Uh, whether it be Christmas gifts, whether it be decorations, whether it be just the stuff. The stuff. And I think that's, that's just what our culture revolves around. That's what the world revolves around is just stuff, things. There's so many different analogies and examples we could give here. But I feel like it comes to a head at Christmas time. It comes to this like point where it's, I'm just thinking of like buying the best gifts for children or buying the best gifts for spouses or buying the best, the car with the ribbon that sits outside that I've never actually known anyone to do. I'm sure it happens. The commercials say so. But like, it's just like we get caught up in this stuff. And I, I don't think we as the church are immune to that. I think that we often get caught up in the very same things of December, of the holidays, of the season. So the first question, it comes right from the text. What sort of people ought we be as we wait for Jesus' return? I tried to use the wording from there. What, what sort of people should we be as we wait for Jesus to return? I think the first part, they're like, we're people that are not consumed with worldly things. We're people who are not consumed with just stuff. I've asked a similar questions the last couple of weeks of how often do you remind yourself of certain things? So how often do you remind yourself that stuff is temporary? That, that the things of the world, that Christmas decorations, of presents, of all these things. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty for buying Christmas presents. That's not the point of this. But like just the stuff, how often do you remind yourself how everything is temporary? Like Peter says, talks about fire and burning and like, thus to be dissolved. How often do you remind yourself of these things? Because I think if we are continually in a place of reminding ourselves of the finiteness or the, how everything is temporary, I think our lives reflect this. I think the way, the places we invest our time, the places we invest our money, our skills, our, our lives, is going to be affected by our view of stuff being temporary or not. But actually, I mean, I, I made it into a question, but Peter's not actually asking that question. He, it's a statement. I, I read a lot in the, in, the, in the Greek and everything and saying like how um, it's, it's not a question. You actually, even in the translation here, it's not a question. What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? He doesn't ask. He's saying like, what sort of people... It's, it's an emphasis. What sort of people ought you be? 
holiness, godliness. It's in contrast to the stuff, in contrast to living with an emphasis on the things that are finite or temporary. Have you ever tried to grasp, like, just the word holy? What does it mean for God to be holy? I was going to make Jordan come up and explain it since I know he's reading a good book right now on the holiness of God. But what? What? You're reading it. Skylar, you, want to, you can explain it then. So, but like the holiness of God is, is something that's hard to even explain. It's hard to wrap our mind. What does it mean for God to be holy? Because it's saying we're supposed to live lives of holiness, of godliness. I'm going to read a quote. It's a very wordy quote with lots of big words. Um, but bear with me for a second. It's by A.A. A. Hodge. He says, The holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is, a, it is His infinite moral perfection crowning His infinite intelligence and power. Did you get all that? A lot of words there. But when we say God is holy, when we say God is holy, it's not just another term that is describing God. It's not just thrown in with his justice or his um, grace or his love or his wisdom or his whatever word you want to throw in. It's, God's holiness is not just one of those. But all of his attributes, all of his characteristics that he exhibits perfectly is pointing towards his holiness. It's pointing towards his fact that he is so set apart from all of creation, from every other thing. He is so set apart, altogether different. I, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to wrap our finite minds around God's holiness. So like in the simplest description, I feel like the holiness of God is just describing how far set apart, how altogether different he is in every way. But here's the kicker, is that Peter says that we're to live lives of holiness. In 1 Peter, he says, be holy as God is holy. How do we do that? What, 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 what does that mean? What does that look like? What does he mean, live lives of holiness? Because it's something that we in ourselves cannot do. We can't choose to be holy. We can't make ourselves holy. That's not a power that we have. If you have your Bible, slip over to Ephesians 1 for a second. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Hurry up, because I'm about to start reading. 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us that we be holy and blameless in Christ. It's not us becoming holy. It's not us making ourselves holy. It's us being holy because of what Jesus has done. In Christ, he chose us 
that we should be holy and blameless. So what sort of people should we be? Holy people, godly people. But it's what Jesus does in us that makes us that. It's the continual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that makes us holy. I mean, it's that word that, it's that sanctification word, that, that the work of, uh, of God in our lives that makes us more like Jesus. The sanctification process that unfortunately is not a process that is done overnight. It's a lifelong process. But becoming holy is not something that we just choose to be holy or we muster up enough strength to be holy. If you remember, basically all through the book of Matthew, I know I said this so many times, of like, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to, to do a work in your life that you cannot do. Only God can do that. Have him change you. Ask God to change your heart, to give you new desires, to give you, to make you more like Jesus. I feel like we're continuing this state. We can be frustrated. I know I can be frustrated. The fact that we still are caught in sin. That even as Christians, we are so prone to sin. This continual reminder that although redeemed, although Jesus has, has justified us, we are justified because of Jesus' work on the cross. That We've had the guilt taken away, but we still sin. We still are broken. So what's it say? Be, live lives of holiness. Live lives of godliness. I mean, for, we've got to pray and pray and pray for God to make us more like Jesus. Pray and pray. Because like, we cannot do this. We cannot do this. But, and I, I feel like, I hope this wasn't what I was saying like back going through Matthew. But as we ask God to give us new hearts, as we ask God to change our hearts and make us more like Jesus, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It doesn't mean that we sit back and just say, all right, God, you got to change me, so I'm going to sit on the couch. It's not a, a passive waiting, a passive, God, you got to change us. Only he can do it. Only he can make us holy. Only he can, can, can sanctify us. But there are specific avenues which God has chosen to do this. So again, I'm going to try to get a little more practical, a little more, here's some good things to do. But these are things that, I mean, as Christians, like, yeah, I should be doing those things. I mean, most, most of us would agree, yeah, we should be reading our Bibles. Yeah, we should be in His Word. We should be praying. We should be going to church. Those are things that I think we'd all acknowledge most people outside the church would say, yeah, those are things that Christians should be doing. But I just want to reemphasize the importance of some of these things. Number one, I guess it's question one, subpoint A. Like, we are sanctified through his word. We're sanctified through scripture. God uses his word to do this. Like, do you understand that in the Bible we have the very words of God? We have the very words of the Almighty God that created the universe. Like, we have access to His commands, His promises, His salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 
says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God teaches us, corrects us, trains us, equips us. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This sword here is not so much the offensive sword that we take. It's not, that's not necessarily what's being talked about here, but it's, I've heard people say this kind of sword is more of a scalpel that is like discerning our thoughts. It's changing us. The Bible does that to us. Also, one of my favorites recently, Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. This is God speaking through Isaiah about his word. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall exceed, succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, like, God's word is going to accomplish everything that he wants it to accomplish. It's not going to return to him void. It's going to do what he sets it out to do. But then what about the verses I just read? To teach, to reproof, to rebuke, for, cor- for correction, for equipping, to discern our thoughts. It's to change us. That's what the Word of God does. So how is one way that we're sanctified? Through His Word. Two, we are sanctified through prayer. Like we all know Christians should pray. We should, we should do that. But, like, contrary to much thought, like, prayer is not just our asking God for things. It's, there, there's that component. We're needy. But that's not all prayer is. Because in prayer, we're submitting ourselves to God. Jesus, as Jesus prayed, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're submitting ourselves to the will of God. We're able to communicate with the holy God of the universe. It's this continual submitting ourselves to the will of God. Number three, we are sanctified through the church. And here's my plug for church attendance. But but seriously, God has given us the church as a means of sanctification. Specifically the local church, the local church that he has us a part of. Like, why do you think the writer of Hebrews says, he tells them not to neglect to meet together often? Because he uses the church to, to grow us as individuals, to shape us, to mold us, to teach us, to correct us. And the not fun part is that, that rebuke side of it. Jesus says, it's, it's Luke 17, 
I don't think it's on the screen. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Like, we're given the church to correct us and point us to truth. If you think of a lot of heresies and cults and stuff that have arisen, it's usually one person off doing something and has a revelation and then begins to teach that. The church is to correct us. It's to point us to the truth. That's why being a part of a, of a church is so important. Because God uses that to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. Like I said, these are three things that are very important. Not, not important in terms of like legal oblig- obligation, but important in terms of like desperate need. Like we need this. Again, only God can change us. Only God can sanctify. But he's given us these things and God works through them. And it, it's not meant as a comprehensive list. It's not meant to say that, that God only does that through his word and through prayer and through the church. Not a comprehensive list. I mean, I, last night, we had a rough night at home and I ran over and seriously scribbled four-year-olds on the list of what God uses to sanctify. <laughs> the children, I mean, it's not an exhaustive list. There's so many things that God uses. But it's not uh, us needing God to change us and we're passive. That's, that's not at all the intention. What kind of lives ought we live? Holiness, godliness, pursuing Jesus, desiring God to make us more like Jesus. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 again, just kind of a refresh. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? So again, we said it's an act of waiting. But what does it mean to hasten the coming of the day of God? Do we really have that ability? Can the church, can we as individuals really speed up the coming of Jesus? I mean, when you first look at that, you first read that, it's like, do we really have that power? Like, that greatly diminishes the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? There's a lot of debate about what that word that the ESV translates to hasten. Some, some versions say speed on or urge on or hasten. Some versions say to strongly desire. But I just want to point out one big thing here. I don't want to turn into an end times discussion necessarily. Because like when, when Matthew, um, in, in Matthew 24, we see Jesus teaching about some end time stuff. What's, what's going to go on? He talks about wars and rumors of war and natural disasters and some stuff. But in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, All this in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the entire world before Jesus returns. And we know that from Revelation 7, 
that there's people from all tribes, all nations, all languages that will be saved. We, we know that. We see that in Revelation 7. We said last week that Jesus has not returned, which means that God is still saving people, that God is still actively saving people. And listen, it's not, I'm not trying to say that Jesus could not return tomorrow, because he absolutely could. He could return in two minutes. That's not trying to limit him. But to the best of our knowledge, there's still over 6,000 people groups that have little to no knowledge of Jesus. Entire, group, entire people groups. Not just people groups with 100 people, but people groups with millions of people who are born, live long lives, die, never having heard of the hope of the gospel, never having heard of Jesus. How can we as the church hasten the coming of Jesus? How do we actively wait and hasten the coming of Jesus? We preach the gospel to the lost. God is still saving people. The call to evangelism, the call to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with the lost is huge here. He's still saving people. We've got to preach the gospel. We've been commanded to make disciples. We've been commanded to go to the nations with the gospel. And we can have confidence that God is still saving people. Confidence in sharing the gospel because God is still saving people. It's like fighting a rigged battle. Like we, we know who wins. We know Jesus is going to return, that new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Like we know Jesus has conquered death, that we know these things. We can have confidence that God is going to save people. I mean, you think just, just trying to think like what this, like, as you watch an Avengers movie, you know the Avengers are going to win in the end. You can have confidence. We can have confidence to know that the football playoff is rigged because Alabama got in. Like, rigged battles. What do you say? You agree? Like, you, we know Jesus is going to win. We know this. We have this promise all through Scripture. And we, have, we can have confidence as we share the gospel. Confidence that God is going to continue to save people. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. How can we not share this? The power of God for salvation. How do we wait for and hasten the coming of Jesus? We preach the gospel in confidence that God is going to continue to save people. Listen, I'm going to make a plug for that perspectives class because there's a class 
that's offered. It's another church here that is basically about looking at the global mission that is taking the gospel to the nations. How that has been done, how it is being done. It's a class to equip believers to, to best share the gospel. Like, I can't encourage you enough to consider taking this. And that's not just, just how to best take the gospel to Japan or China or Africa or, or any other continent, but it's equipping us to take the gospel to our neighbor, to the person across the street that might be different from us. Like, there's so much importance, so much emphasis on sharing the gospel here. Again, I ask those questions again. How often do you remind yourself of all of this? How often do you remind yourself that the gospel is going to go to all people groups? How often do you remind yourself that the gospel is the power of God to save people? If you're a Christian, how often do you remind yourself that you've been changed and saved by this gospel? You've been given this gospel. You've been given this salvation. You've been given the gospel that has the power to save your neighbor or save the person on a different continent. You've been changed by the gospel. Like, what better time to share this than Christmas? Than the time of year when we're celebrating the coming of the Savior? What better time? God uses his church... He uses individuals in his church that have been saved, been redeemed by the gospel to take the gospel to the lost. He doesn't need us, but he uses his church to take the gospel to the lost. I did this last week, so I'm going to try it again. Not every week, but look at me for two seconds. I got some positive feedback. There's always one. But seriously, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, this means you taking the gospel to the lost. How do we wait for and hasten the coming of Jesus? We share the gospel. We preach the gospel. We take the gospel to the lost. We make disciples. We baptize. We teach them all that we've been taught. Final question. What do we have to look forward to? as we seek to live lives of godliness, of holiness, as we go sharing the gospel, as we go, what do we have to look forward to? Verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What are we waiting for? A place, a day, the new heaven, new earth, 
where righteousness dwells. I mean, we, we talked about this briefly last week. We know that's not here. We know that's not now. I mean, the world that we see is often, justice is often absent, love is often absent, mercy is often absent. It's full of tears, pain, frustration, difficulty, sin, brokenness. But we know that we, we know that as a church, we have a promise for something so much more. A place that will be perfect. A place where righteousness will dwell. Based on this, I can't not read Revelation 21 again. I read it, I've read it probably ten times in the past six months. But it's one of Nick's favorites, so I know he's not getting tired of it. And I hope that none of us are. Because, like, the hope in these verses is huge. So much. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Hopefully we've got it memorized by now. This is John. He says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. A world with no more crying, no more injustice, no more abuse, no more cancer, no more war, no more abandoned children, no more starvation, no more death. Like, this is a world that we have to look forward to. A place where righteousness dwells. Where we will be God's and he will be ours. Revelation 21, just a couple verses later in verse 23, says, this, this world has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. I don't think our finite minds even comprehend this amount of joy, this amount of perfection, this amount of anything. It's just, I don't think we grasp this. Like the time of Advent, the time of Christmas, is this building up of this joy, this anticipation for this day. It's a time of looking back at the joy that was found in the birth of Jesus. The joy that was found as as people had longed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for a Savior. The joy of Jesus being born as a baby. The joy that was there. The joy of the angels as they appeared to the shepherds singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those 
with whom he is pleased. The day of Christmas, the celebration of Christmas, is a celebration of this joy. The joy of a Savior, the joy of a hope for salvation, but also a hope for a future place when all sin would once and forever, once and for all, once and forever, same thing, be wiped away. And in this, this time of year, there's always like a sense of a glimmer of joy, of happiness. Even like in like the, the world itself, there's the, the being merry. You just look at any Hallmark Christmas movie. There's always that, they, they, they get the boy, they get the girl, or the family's restored. Or there, there's some sort of fulfillment, there's some sort of happiness at the end. It's a time of year that we think about, like there, there's, there's joy, there's ha- happiness in seeing children open presents and, and open up presents ourselves, maybe. Excitement of seeing family. But w- why do we have joy? Why are we celebrating? Why are we ultimately rejoicing? What are we rejoicing in? We're celebrating that a Savior came into the world. We're celebrating the wonderful news that God did not leave us dead in our sins. He did not leave us dead in our sins, but sent a Savior to save us when we had no hope. We look back and celebrate that, but we look forward longing for this ultimate fulfillment. Because the celebration of Christmas is so wrapped up into both. The celebration, the coming celebration of a place with no more death, no more pain, no more sickness. A place when we are with God. During the next two weeks, I guess now, leading up to Christmas, like, what would it look like for our lives to be wrapped up in this, wrapped up in this type of hope, this type of joy? As we desire to be made more like Jesus, what would it look like to study his word, to spend time with him in prayer, to spend time together as the church? What would it look like to truly seek this, these lives of holiness and godliness that Peter's talking about? What would it look like for us as the church to be so passionate about Jesus that we're sharing the gospel all the time? Especially right now, especially at Christmas time when we're celebrating Jesus, when we're celebrating the birth of the Savior. What would it look like for the church, but for us individually to be so passionate about sharing the gospel. Again, all these things we've talked about the last three weeks, reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness, reminding ourselves of what we have to look forward to, reminding ourselves that Jesus has now returned and God is still saving people, reminding ourselves 
if you're saved, that God did not leave you dead but made you alive. He sent Jesus. Reminding yourself of the gospel. If you're not saved, reminding yourself that Jesus has not returned and that is grace, that is mercy. Like, remind yourself of these things. Pray that God would make us into these type of people so passionately in love with him that we just can't get enough. And it overflows as we passionately share the gospel, as we take the gospel to our neighbors and to different countries. Like, what would it look like for us to be these people? That is my prayer, that that, that God would so give us joy in these things. Joy that causes us to rejoice in song. Joy that causes us to respond to who he is, to long for him, to long to spend time with him in his word. Let's go ahead and pray.